would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 5. We're going to look together at verses 17 through 20 in the time that we have together this morning. I, I want to sort of retrace our steps because there's a progression here in the Sermon on the Mount that I want you to be able to see. We began with an examination of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus describing these conditions under which happiness is enjoyed. However, they are conditions that we would not ordinarily associate with happiness or blessedness. Jesus says those who are poor, those who mourn, those who are meek or timid, those who are hungry or thirsty, these are happy. Jesus is setting forth a radically different agenda for a radically different kingdom. We talked last week about three basic principles that run throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Christ radically different people. We, we are new people because of what Jesus has done for us. That is, if you are in Christ, you are radically different than you were out of Christ. You are a different person if you have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You simply cannot bear with the presence of God's Spirit in your life and be unaffected by that presence. We are radically different people because of what Jesus has done for us. The second thing is that we have become citizens of a radically different kingdom. The way the kingdom of God works is fundamentally different than the way the kingdoms of this world work. We have this right side up notion as citizens of earthly kingdoms. And Jesus in the Beatitudes turns all of that on its head. We've talked over and over about this idea that in the kingdom, the way up is down, the way forward is back, the way to exaltation is humiliation, the way to be first is to be last, the way to be the master of all is to be a servant of all. This is the way the kingdom works, and it is fundamentally different than the way the kingdoms of this world work. Now, given the radical nature of what Jesus has described here in the Beatitudes, we are new people in a new kingdom with a new worldview. Given the radical nature of all that Jesus has described in just those eight Beatitudes, we might come to the conclusion that what Jesus intends is that we live our lives completely withdrawn from the world around us. But he dispels that misunderstanding by noting that we are to be the salt and the light. Rather than withdraw, we are to, as salt, be pressed to the substance of this world and to have a preserving effect, improving the circumstances of the world around us, providing light and direction and influence as cities set upon a great hill. We are not to withdraw, rather, we are to permeate the culture around us and improve upon it as salt and light by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, if we're not to withdraw, surely given the radical nature of what Jesus has described, something fundamentally new is happening in religion. Maybe because of what Jesus has described, we might come to the conclusion that what he has set forth here is different than anything described in the Bible until now. Jesus makes it crystal clear in verses 17 through 20 that this is not a break with the Old Testament. 
This is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. Sometimes I hear false distinctions made between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The law and the judgment of the Old Testament in contrast to the grace and the mercy of the New Covenant. There is no conflict. There is no contrast to be drawn. Jesus, he says, is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise and every Old Testament expectation. Let's observe this together in verses 17 through 20. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, beginning in verse number 17, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I want to show you three basic concepts that come from these verses we've just now read. I want us to note first that Jesus has declared that he himself fulfills the law and the prophets. In verse 17, the Bible says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What does Jesus intend in this statement? What does it mean to say that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? Well, for one, it means that Jesus is perfect in his righteousness. Jesus met every righteous expectation that God ever had for you or for me. Jesus is perfect in his righteousness. There was never a, a moment in Jesus' life when he made a mistake. There was never a moment in Jesus' life when he would succumb to the temptation to sin. Even under dire circumstances, 40 days in the wilderness, and Jesus bore with the temptation of Satan. Jesus is perfect in his righteousness. Every expectation, the high standard of God for all of humanity, was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. There's not a single command of all of the hundreds of commands issued in the word of God that Jesus does not fulfill perfectly in his earthly life and ministry. Jesus is perfect in his righteousness. Even beyond the moral requirements, the moral expectations that God has for us, Jesus meets every expectation. The ceremonial and sacrificial requirements of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills perfectly. Why, why don't we celebrate the Passover as New Testament, New Covenant believers? Because Jesus has fulfilled the requirement of the Passover celebration. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, not about the family dinner table, has met the righteous expectation of God that blood would be shed, that our sin might be atoned for. 
The blood of a spotless lamb has been painted across our hearts, not our doorpost, but our hearts through the shedding of Jesus' blood. Every expectation has been established. It has been fulfilled in Jesus. Why is it that we meet on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, and we don't sit in silence on the last day of the week, on the Sabbath day? Because Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. He has invited us into himself. Come unto me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I've come to give you Sabbath rest. Come to me. From time to time, I I run into Christians who seem to be fascinated with these Old Testament ceremonies, the celebration of the festivals of the Old Testament, and I'll even run into folks from time to time who get obsessed over the Sabbath and the observance of the Sabbath on the Sabbath day, which again is Saturday. It'd be problematic in our culture with college football, but that's a discussion for another day. And I just want to say to you, there there may be some intrigue, some curiosity that drives you to those issues, and there may be some benefit in observing how those festivals or ceremonies unfold so that you're able to better understand what's happening in the Old Testament to better appreciate what God has done for us through Jesus in the New Testament. But Jesus has satisfied the requirement of every ceremonial law in the Bible. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus has fulfilled every promise, every righteous expectation of his holy word. Verse 18, the Bible says, I assure you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. In the Greek text, it says until not one iota, It is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's like an I without the dot atop it. Not the smallest letter in God's word will fall away until all is accomplished. A poetic way of saying that the grass withers and its flower fades away, but the word of our God abides forever. God's word stands. God's word stands. One one of the things I find frustrating about so many contemporary cultural debates is, is... the ignorant note that certain things are said in the Old Testament but are not said, which they usually are said in the New Testament. This is always the issue with LGBT conversations. Where the New Testament doesn't speak of such things. Please take note this morning as we look at verses 17 and 18 that Jesus affirms the Old Testament. That Jesus believed in the inerrancy of Moses and the prophets. That Jesus believed to be the Bible, the Bible to be the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of God, good for us, for rebuke, for correction, for reproof, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our understanding of the scripture is not born out of thin air. It derives from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. No conflict between Old and New Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation in his life and ministry unfolded for us, revealed to us in the words of the New Testament. Here's another implication of what's said here in verse number 18, that not one jot or iota will pass away, not the smallest letter until all things are accomplished. It means that you don't have to wait until you get past the book of Malachi in your Bible reading to learn something about Jesus. 
The whole Bible is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the scriptures, the scriptures, they testify of me. On the road to Emmaus with two disciples alongside, Jesus opened the law and the prophets, and he expounded them to them, and their hearts burned within them as they understood the implications of those texts for what Jesus had done through his death and his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, Jesus fulfills perfectly the law and the prophets. When we're reading Old Testament passages, we ought to never ask the question, if this means anything for us. Does this apply to me? Rather, we ask, how does this apply to my life? We're looking at a Passover passage. We ask how this applies to me. It, it helps us in the context of understanding the greatness and the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Not an annual sacrifice, but a sacrifice made once and for all. A final sacrifice that was the fulfillment of what shadowed that sacrifice in history. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Here's the second thing I want you to see in verse number 19. The kingdom of heaven is ruled by righteousness. Listen to what the Bible says. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness rules the kingdom of heaven, literally and figuratively. Literally, in that Jesus, the righteous king, rules over the kingdom of heaven. But also, in a practical sense, in that the high call of God on our life stands as kingdom citizens. Somewhere along the way, there, there has entered in a misunderstanding that I suppose is as old as the gospel itself, that because we enter the kingdom by the righteousness of Jesus, that we are somehow to be dismissive of the high call of God on our lives personally. Y'all with me? Paul dealt with this in Romans chapter 6, where, where he says, sort of echoing, mimicking the opposition party of his day, should we sin more that grace may abound? That was the argument in many precincts of the Roman church. Paul responds, absolutely not. And I respond, and you ought to respond, absolutely not. We enter the kingdom of heaven through the righteousness of Jesus, but the righteousness of Jesus through which we enter begins to rub off on the people of God. The gospel has a profound effect on the way we live our lives. We must take the command of God's word seriously. You simply cannot walk faithfully with Jesus while being dismissive of what his word requires under us. It's kind of an oxymoron if you think about it to say, I have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, but I am dismissive of his commands over my life. It works in no other system. On the athletic team, you be a member of the team and be dismissive of the coach's requirements and you'll quickly be dismissed from the team. You be a member of my home and be dismissive of my requirements and you'll quickly be dismissed from the home. It just doesn't work that way in any other system, and it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of heaven either. Although kingdom citizenship is based entirely in Christ's own righteousness, the kingdom citizen is not dismissive of the call to personal righteousness. We are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And somewhere along the way, it has become less than fashionable 
to be serious about personal righteousness, to be dismissive of certain aspects of God's call on our life. And far too often, unrighteousness is cloaked in, in, in gospel confidence, which is no more than a cavalier flaunting of the grace that God has afforded us, unmerited favor that God has afforded us through his son, Jesus Christ. If you have truly been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, misery will always abide your sin. You go that way if you want, but it'll always lead to misery, disgust and heartbreak and great pain. And it will not relent. It will not relent until God has brought you home. For those who have been truly touched by the gospel, there is a yearning and a burning in our inner being, in our very hearts, that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. To want so desperately to please Jesus with all of our life, that is the controlling command, our most earnest desire that we would bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus with all of our life. Frankly, the only thing that keeps me from going off the rails sometime is knowing that I, I want Jesus, the all-seeing judge of heaven, to look upon my life and be pleased with what he observes. The kingdom of heaven is ruled by righteousness. Here's a third and final thing I want you to see in verse 20. For I tell you that the scribes, that, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to take note of what Jesus is doing here in our passage. Jesus has said, unless you are more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, you can't get to heaven. Now, you may have in your mind, if you're a student of the Bible or you've just been around Bible studies, that scribes and Pharisees are bad people. And Jesus certainly, throughout the course of his ministry, finds the hole in the religious practice of the scribes and Pharisees, and he, he majors on that in his teaching ministry. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says again and again and again seven times, woe to you hypocrites, and the scribes and the Pharisees are the very people he has in view. He says, you are, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you are filled with dead men's bones. You are broken. On the outside, you have externalized the law, but on the inside, you are as rotten and as miserable and as broken as one could ever think of being. Jesus flaunts the broken practice of the scribes and Pharisees. But if you took a poll on the streets of Jerusalem in first century Israel, you would note that to a man, everyone would have affirmed the perfect righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The job of the Pharisee was to be a guardian of the law, to protect the law. In fact, where they got in trouble was they began to establish laws around the laws. It's kind of like we do with our kids. Don't even get close to that. I don't want you to break that, so don't get within five feet of that. And they began to build law on top of law on top of law and, and, until fellowship with God was something that was understood as almost impenetrable. We cannot get to God. There is such distance. There's a chasm between us. There cannot be reconciliation or relationship here. The problem they had was building fences around the law. But you certainly could not point the finger at the Pharisees and accuse them of immorality or unrighteousness in the traditional sense of the terms. 
The job of the scribe was that of a copyist. He spent hour after hour and day after day in painstaking care, very deliberate, intentional in all that he did, walking through, going through various ceremonies in order to make himself acceptable for this practice, copying down the word of God, scroll after scroll after scroll. His life would have been spent copying with pen and ink the words of God. If you copy the word of God day after day and hour after hour, you become rather expert in what the word of God says. So in addition to serving as a copyist, they would serve almost as an attorney. They would adjudicate difficult cases. If there was a situation that came up in someone's life or experience, they would go to the scribes and say, scribes, help us to make application or understand what the word of God says regarding this particular issue. Because you have access to the law, unbridled and incredible intellectual access to the law. Help us to know how best to implement the practices of the law in this particular scenario. So we have in the Pharisees the guardians of the law, and you have in the scribes the attorneys of the law, and Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can never get into heaven. And I can say to you this morning as a congregation, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can never get into heaven. I want you to know what Jesus does in the remainder of Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, 21 and following, Jesus says, You've heard it said of old, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you that if you have so much as harbored hatred or bitterness or hostility in your heart for a brother, you have just as much as committed murder in your heart and are worthy of eternal judgment. In the next paragraph, Jesus says, you have heard it said of old, you shall not, mur- shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you've so much as had a lustful thought, that you are deserving of everlasting judgment. You've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says in following paragraphs, you've been serious about the business of taking oaths and keeping the oath that you swore, but I say to you, don't even swear an oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be truthful and honest in in all matters. Jesus says later in Matthew 5, you've heard it said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love those who hate you and persecute you and treat you spitefully. You've lived up to a standard that runs about right here, but Jesus says, in reality, the standard is way up here. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Then listen to what Jesus says in the closing verse of Matthew chapter 5. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's the third and final principle I want you to see from this passage. Kingdom Right kingdom access requires perfect righteousness. Now, we like to say in our culture, no one's perfect. It's like you catch the serial killer in his first statement in the 60 Minutes interview is, no one's perfect. It's, it's become, in our culture, the ultimate cop-out, right? Like, no one can judge me because there is no perfect judge, The reality is that what you do, good or bad, is good or bad apart from what anyone else does. That's just an aside. But regardless of how justified you may feel in or about your unrighteousness, the standard of God holds fast. Be perfect even as your Father is perfect 
And in Matthew 5.20, Jesus makes this the standard for access to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless you are perfect, not perfect from today on, but perfect, 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 you cannot go to heaven. Think about that. What God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, is the impossible. Jesus has come, and he has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of God for you and for me, that we might have access to heaven in spite of our imperfections because he is perfect in his righteousness. You have got to stop allowing yourself to believe that through your obedience, you are somehow going to win the favor of God. You cannot, because the standard is established in our passage, and it's one of perfection. And if, even if you were able to muster the moral ability to be perfect from this day forward, you fouled it up this morning. Perfection is the standard. And by the way, you can't muster the moral ability to be perfect from this moment forward. You won't get off the campus before you foul it up in some way. You are by your very nature, because of the blood flowing in your veins and the DNA that constructs you as you are, you are a sinner by birth and by choice. You are by your very nature imperfect. And so God has sent forth Jesus that what he expected of us would be fulfilled, it would be established in his son. We say often that we can't trust works to save us from our sin, but what I want you to see from this passage is that on some level we can and we must, only they're not our works, they're the perfect works of Jesus Christ. You must stop trusting your morality. You must stop trusting your perceived goodness to win favor with God and by faith trust the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient sacrifice that atones for our sin if you're to ever have any hope of access to the kingdom of God. This is the way we enter. In fact, it is the only way that one can enter the kingdom of heaven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him and love him and treasure Jesus? Have you been touched by the power of the gospel such that your life is irreversibly changed because of what Jesus has done for you? Do you, do you know him? Do you see how futile our efforts at religion really are? In fact, Jesus' strongest condemnations, as we've noted, are for the religious because they, they, they fundamentally miss the mark, believing they have the power to win the favor of God. Jesus says, you must come as children into the kingdom with no expectation for deserving something, right? This is how children come. They come in anticipation, but they don't come with expectations. And the fool in us, the pride in us wants to believe that somehow, some way, because of something we've done along the way, that God owes us something. And God owes you nothing except eternal judgment for your sins against him. But he offers us 
the free gift of forgiveness and grace and mercy at the cost of his son's life. This is what we call amazing grace. And if you're to know the kingdom of heaven, if you're to be the radically different person, citizens of a radically different kingdom with a radically different worldview, this is the way you must come. Forgiven. Broken over your sin, but forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus. Have you believed on him? Listen, come, come in close. Have you believed on Jesus so much so that it shapes the course of your life? The decisions that you make, the things that you say, is the controlling factor in your life a, a longing, a desire to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ? If it's not, there's something awry. Make confession this morning. Run to the cross for grace and for mercy.